0: In Ephesians 2 19 through 22 the Apostle Paul writes this so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the Saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the Apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Of all the truths that we've been covering over the past several months in 1 Corinthians, this here, I think, is perhaps the most astounding that we, as God's people, are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Of course, that's a thought that should sober us because it means that this holy God that we worship is very near to us and will even discipline us if we offend His holiness and dishonor His good name. That's the thought that Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 3 when he sees these rivalries taking place in the church and writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. However, this thought shouldn't just sober us, it should also bring us great rejoicing. And most especially, I think, on a day such as this one here this morning. And that's because this truth not only declares that God is with us and will guide and direct His people through a crisis like COVID-19. But it also means that when the church assembles, we're engaging in an incredibly unique expression of worship. You sometimes hear it said that you don't know what you've got until it's gone. My prayer has been that this is one of the ways that God would work through this crisis, that he would use this time that we've had apart to strengthen the church's desire to assemble together. The corporate assembly is a, a unique and special event in the life of the Christian, and my hope has been that the time we've had away would cause us all to ponder the uniqueness of this assembly and what is so special and meaningful about it. I would gather that if you ask most Christians why they need to be at church, a good many would say that it's because it's where we learn to grow as Christians. And no doubt that's certainly true. One of the primary reasons for our assembly is to be instructed in the faith. Uh, you know... Um, You know, we we gather together to hear teaching, to be built up in the Lord. And yet when you stop and think about it, we live in a day and age when we're able to solve a lot of that separation through technology, right? I can record my sermons and put them on YouTube. Uh, We can have conversations together over Zoom. Now, this isn't to say that it's all just exactly the same when we do these things online versus in person. Quite clearly it's not. Still, we can approximate a, a reasonable facsimile through these technologies, something that's, that's close enough that we can get by in a way that Christians say, you know, 100 years ago couldn't. And if that's the case, then why assemble? Why is it such a big deal not to be in fellowship together? And I think there are probably a, a number of different answers to that question, but one significant answer is wrapped up in this idea of temple. To put it succinctly, according to the scriptures, God tends not to see us merely as individuals, but in groups. And that includes the worship that we offer up to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, for instance, says that we are to renew our minds and discern the will of God so that we can present our bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We are multiple bodies, a collection of distinct entities, individuals, coming together as a single living sacrifice. To borrow, to borrow the language of 1 Peter 2, we are all individually living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, we are one body, one temple, indwelled by one Spirit of God. Meaning worship isn't just something that I offer up to God individually, instead it's something we do together collectively. We don't really do that when we don't assemble together to worship. We may be able to minister the word of God to one another as one body while we're separated, but it's very hard for us to function together as a temple when we're disassembled. Of course, that's not to say we can't sing together or something over Zoom. We could do that. But we would still be doing so as scattered stones. We'd be doing so as a temple torn down. When God's people gather together on Sunday physically, that temple assembles. As I think about the importance of our assembly, I, I even think of the picture this presents to the world if they have eyes to see it. If you think about it, there's a kind of eschatological picture that occurs every Sunday morning. Every Sunday as the temple of God assembles in these local congregations throughout these various communities that are scattered across the earth, the church points ahead to this future ingathering of the people of God that will occur at the return of Christ. When we will, together with one voice, glorify our God and Father in heaven. It is an incredibly special thing for us to be able to gather together again this morning. And again, this is my prayer, that the church at large will begin to make realizations like this one. And that Christians across the world will actually grow in their love for the local church through this crisis. And it's with this same thought in mind, this notion of the importance of the local church, that I want to explain to you what I'm going to do here this morning. I'm not going to continue our series in 1 Corinthians today. Uh, in my study, I've hit a rough patch at the beginning of uh, chapter 5. Uh, the next passage that we're about to encounter has some difficulties in it that I haven't been able to resolve just yet. Uh, And they're actually really (laughs) interesting. I I, I wish I could preach it today uh, because of what it's talking about. There are some interesting elements that I'm wrestling with that I think actually speak very directly to uh, what's taking place here this morning as part of the church worships with us at home and how we're actually still in union together as we do that. I wish I could get into it. I'm not quite ready for it yet. So rather than simply press ahead... And undermine everything that I've been saying to you over the past couple of weeks about what it means to live as sons of the Apostles uh, I thought it best to take a breather and explore some other topic uh, while I get in that get that straightened out and uh, with that in mind I want to take this morning to address a trend that I see taking place in the church at large right now which quite honestly I find rather disturbing in which if not addressed, carries the potential to suck you in and harm your witness to the gospel. Just so you know, I think this is actually another argument for the local church. The reason why Christians gather together in local assemblies and receive instruction there instead of just getting all their teaching online isn't just because these local assemblies provide a platform for Christian fellowship. No, it's because presumably... The men standing in the pulpit of these local assemblies not only know the spiritual condition of those in attendance, but they also very intentionally tailor their presentation of God's word in such a way as to minister to the spiritual condition of their congregation. And that's what I want to attempt to do this morning as we discuss the Christian's response to COVID-19. Just so you know, this is not going to be an expository sermon. That's that's pretty uncharacteristic of me, but um, this isn't going to be an expository sermon today, meaning I'm not going to be taking my points from any one particular text, and I'm not even going to be spending a lot of time trying to explain all the different texts that we're going to be interacting with. Instead, I'm going to assume that if you've been under this ministry for some time, then you can already track with what I'm saying here, because these are really summary points of a number of different passages that I've taught you over the past several years. And based on this, I'm going to just sort of jump straight to application, so to speak, on some concepts. If I could put it one more uh, way, I don't think what I'm about to tell you is just my opinion. These are scriptural concepts that I'm explaining. I'm just trying to focus my attention on bringing these principles to bear on this specific situation. I should also probably note that I in no way intend to provide a a comprehensive treatment of this subject. So please don't think I'm trying to address all the various ways that we're supposed to respond to a pandemic as Christians. Rather, again, I'm trying to address a very particular attitude that I see uh, come up in the, the church as of late. And so my points are really aimed at addressing that attitude specifically. The title for this morning's message is Imaging Christ During COVID-19. That's because this is what I'm really after here. If you recall over the past several weeks, I've said that there's this expectation in the scripture that children will imitate their parents. And that this is all built off of the idea that man himself was created to imitate the image of God. Well, it's with this in mind that I want us to consider together what it means to imitate Christ in the middle of this pandemic. Before we jump too far into this subject, I want to preface what I'm about to say with a passage from Ephesians 4. The text is Ephesians 4, 25 through 27. And it comes on the heels of an exhortation by Paul to put off our old manner of life and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God which happens, Paul explains, through the renewal of the mind. Then he says, verses 25 through 27, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, And give no opportunity for the devil. There are a number of different things about what Paul could uh, mean here when he says give no opportunity for the devil. It could refer to the devil's desire to tempt mankind and most especially God's people and get them to dishonor God with their actions. It could refer to the devil's desire to sow discord and division, again, both within mankind generally and even more specifically among the people of God. I'll tell you personally, this is the reading that I would tend to take, given what Paul says about the need for unity earlier in this chapter, that he's talking about the devil's desire to sow discord and division and most specifically within the body of Christ. But regardless, the common denominator is that anger carries the potential to provide the devil with this opportunity. As I've taught many times before, anger in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. As Paul says here, he actually commands us, be angry and do not sin. So it's definitely possible to be angry and not sin. And yet... Anger often leads to sin. Anger is, is really nothing more than energy directed at a perceived injustice. That can be done in a constructive way by seeking to heal the rift in a relationship that's been caused by error in sin. But unfortunately, because of our sin nature, we tend to do the opposite. We tend to respond to the sins committed against us in a destructive way. And this only serves to drive the wedge in our relationships still deeper. But Paul is obviously commanding us here as God's people created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness is to approach the conflict in the first way, not the second. God is a peacemaker. He offers pardon even to those who sin against Him and offend His holiness. It makes sense that his people are going to be peacemakers as well. In fact, to quote Matthew 5 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Friends, this is what sonship looks like. If sons imitate their fathers, then one way we'll know that we're sons of our Heavenly Father is by the way we handle conflict. We will live as peacemakers. I say all of this because I've observed a lot of tension in the church at large regarding how we as Christians are supposed to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. And if I can narrow it down even further, how how we are supposed to respond to our government specifically as it attempts to guide us through this pandemic. And the thing that I want us to observe at the outset of this discussion is that if we're going to image God during this pandemic, then we absolutely must strive for peace in the middle of these disagreements. That's peace within the church, certainly. We simply cannot image Christ to the world if we're at war with one another internally since to do so contradicts both the character of God and his gospel but i think even more than this this entails being at peace with our unbelieving neighbors as well as the apostle paul exhorts us in romans 12:18 so far as it depends on us we are to live peaceably with all Again, our God is a peace-making God, and so to reflect the image of God to the world, we must do so by seeking peace with the world. Now, to be clear, this isn't peace at the cost of truth. I'd imagine you all know me well enough by now to know I would never advocate something like that, a mere spiritual pacifism. I mean, there's a reason why Paul says, so far as it depends on us, in that statement, right? It's because sometimes as, as much as we may want peace, the other side wants war. And the resolution to that kind of a conflict is not surrender, right? This isn't what the Bible means by being a peacemaker with the world, simply waving the white flag. That's one way to get peace. And the scriptures condemn that kind of peace. But as long as we can have peace without compromise, the scripture tells us where to seek it, to strive for it even, even with the unbelieving world. How does one arrive at that sort of peace? How do we get angry and yet not sin? Paul gives us the answer towards the beginning of this same chapter. As he urges the body to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, he says, verses 1 through 3, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right there you have it. How do you maintain the unity of the body of Christ? How do you even make peace with the world? It comes with humility and gentleness and patience. Last week I was having a conversation with someone I know out in the community. I really don't know the, the, this man that well, uh, but I know he's a Christian. And I was asking what his church was doing to respond to everything that's been going on. And he was asking me, in the middle of this conversation, he started asking me what I thought about everything and whether I thought maybe this whole thing has been contrived in an effort to control us. Now, I don't entirely know who the us is in that question. Does he mean Christians specifically? or American citizens at large. It wasn't entirely clear, uh, but I told him, no, I don't think that's what this is. I said that China essentially shut down their economy for a month, and we know how that nation tends to treat its people, (laughs) right? It tends to be motivated by the economic good of the nation, the good of the whole, not the good of the individual. To put it another way, it's not a nation that's very obsessed with the notion of human rights. So I can't think they did that for nothing. Instead, I have to think that from a purely economic perspective, they saw a greater threat to the economy in letting the virus run rampant than in simply shutting it down. I said as well that there's been bipartisan support for the shutdown by the individuals who are not only in the position to make these decisions, but whose business is governing. It's what they have experience in, it's what they do. So when virtually all of our leaders are making that decision, I can't think that was for nothing. In short, I said that I think our leaders have been fairly sincere in their concern over the virus. And then I noted that it doesn't seem as if the virus has, in fact, been as deadly as what was initially predicted. I said that there are studies which seem to indicate that since carriers of the virus are often asymptomatic, there are Large sections of the population that may have already had the disease without realizing it. And that perhaps when it's all said and done, it really will have a mortality rate similar to the flu. I observed that the USNS Comfort was sent away from New York after treating only a fraction of the patients that were initially expected. And I told this man, I think the truth is no one really knows what this thing is. I think our leaders are trying their best to guide us through a very difficult situation, but no one really knows what's going on. We're all trying to figure this out. And in case you're wondering, that's what my position on this whole thing is. That's where I stand. I think the jury is still out on how deadly this disease is. None of us really knows. Not even the virologists, it seems, know. And so everyone is really doing the best they can to work their way through this crisis in a way that seems wise. And that's hard to judge because we don't have all the data in just yet. Meaning it's basically just trial and error at this point. Some will guess one way, some another, and some will get the answer more right than others in the end. Does that mean that they were smarter or better intentioned than the other side? No, I think it means they made a good guess doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be wise and make the best guess we can. It just means that whatever position we take, we should probably take it with a touch of humility. I think this is the perspective we need to take if we're going to make peace in this situation. Paul shows us in Ephesians 4 that peace comes not by thinking that you know everything that's going on and then arrogantly condemning everyone else who doesn't see it your way. Rather, it comes by admitting that you don't know everything. It comes through humility and then discussing your disagreements with gentleness, bearing patiently with one another as we realize that it's possible to get the answers to these these things wrong and still not be guilty of sin, per se. To quote Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. In other words, if we want peace in the body of Christ, peace even in our political discourse, it isn't going to happen by casting unfounded accusations at each other. Accusing the other side of cowardice, for instance, or that they're orchestrating this whole thing for some nefarious purpose. That isn't going to bring peace. No, peace comes by being humble. And dealing gently with one another, bearing with one another in love. In love, you will remember from 1 Corinthians 13, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It doesn't assume the worst in other people, does it? No, love assumes the best. This is the attitude we have to have in mind as we talk about this crisis with each other. I mean, you think about this service right now. And not everyone in our church is in attendance at this moment. For those of you who are here, the right way to think about this is not to assume that those who have decided to stay at home are cowards or something like that. And for those of you who are at home, neither should you automatically assume that the individuals here in attendance are reckless and unloving. Rather, we need to assume the best in one another, believing that everyone is doing their best to navigate their way through a very difficult situation and seek to support one another through this trial, even as we have differences of opinion about our approach. Now, does this mean that everyone actually is doing their best? Is it really reasonable to assume that sin isn't entering the picture in our decision-making and probably at a much greater level than we'd like to admit? I mean, no, right? It most certainly is. But still, that's what the Scripture commands us to do. To assume the best in our neighbor, not the worst, because that's love. And by the way, the same goes for our elected leaders. We need to assume the best in our elected officials, not the worst. And again, yes, I understand that seems to go against what the Scripture tells us about human nature. But again, that's what the scriptures command us to do. Yes, wicked rulers may have it in their heart to do the church harm. But to quote the Lord Jesus, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. As Christians, we do not return evil with evil. Rather, we return evil with good. And that includes loving our elected officials enough to trust them, knowing full well that it's more than possible that they'll violate that trust. There's really so much more I, ha- I want to say at this point about uh, you know, the nature of political discourse um, and fear and the threat it brings to the church, uh, even conspiracy theories, and I think how we as Christians need to interact with that. But like I said, this isn't a comprehensive message on the topic. As it is, I'm almost halfway through, and I haven't even gotten... To the two main points yet. And to get into all of that would be uh, a pretty big detour um, from the topic I want to cover, and that's the Christians' attitude towards their rights. That's what I want to talk about with you here this morning the Christians' attitude towards their rights. I've seen a lot of concern lately amongst Christians about what they perceive to be the government's violation of their constitutional rights. For example, some of you uh, probably know uh, that I don't really do much with with Facebook or other types of social media. Uh, Personally, I think social media has played a major role in the toxic and divisive nature of our public discourse. Uh, Further, I think it fosters pride and fear of man. Uh, I think it could be a great tool if people could interact with it in an edifying way, but personally that's not been my experience with it. Uh, Still, uh, and maybe I'm a hypocrite when I say this, I still get on Facebook (laughs) from time to time because that's where people tend to hang out today. And uh, it's sort of, you know, kind of like the marketplace in Paul's day. Uh, So I pop in from time to time to try to get a feel for what people are talking about, uh, what they're concerned with, and this is what I'm finding. I'm finding that... Uh, Even among, or perhaps I should say, even especially among pastors, there seems to be this obsession at the moment with the government's violation of our rights. I think of one pastor I know, for instance, really just an acquaintance. We're not friends or anything. We met just one time before. Uh, But a couple of weeks back, he was very insistent that his church was going to violate the governor's stay-at-home order in his state in order to demonstrate that the government doesn't have the right to tell Christians what we can, when we can or cannot meet. Friends, I, I, I don't know about you, but I see these attitudes on display and I'm bothered because there's so little of Christ-likeness in this. I know that many of you do engage in these types of media and you're seeing comments like this out there being promoted by church leaders, no less, by pastors. And so in an effort to try to protect you from these kinds of influences, I want to remind you briefly of two key points, I think, regarding what likeness looks like. And the first reminder is this. Number one, Christ-likeness means meekness in the face of injustice, not self-assertion. Christ-likeness means meekness in the face of injustice, not self-assertion. Before I start on this point, I should probably clarify a couple of things. Uh, First, I think I should probably clarify that when the government issues a stay-at-home order for public health, I don't think that's a form of persecution. Again, there's a lot we could say about persecution in the midst of all this, but suffice to say, I don't think it's a form of persecution because it's not being motivated by an attempt to silence the gospel. It's motivated by a concern for public health. And if you want proof of that, just look to the fact that sporting events have been canceled too. This doesn't have anything to do with the government trying to suppress the gospel. It has everything to do with, with it trying to suppress the spread of a deadly disease. Now, whether or not we need to cancel public gatherings to suppress that disease, or whether or not it makes sense to say it's okay to go to Walmart because that's an essential service, but the church isn't, that's a different matter entirely. Again, I'm not even going to try to get into all that today because that's not really my point. I'm not trying to address whether or not the government is right in issuing a stay-at-home order that affects the church. Rather, my point is that simply right or wrong, wise or unwise, they're not saying it because they're intending to suppress the gospel. They're trying to suppress the disease. That matters because if they're trying to single the church out in an effort to suppress the gospel, well, then the scripture is clear. We can't have peace in that situation. We have to proclaim Christ anyways. So let me just get on record with that point. Civil disobedience is warranted in the face of persecution. But I don't think that's what we're dealing with here. Second, I want you to understand that I'm not attempting to address the constitutionality of these orders. I mean, you can talk to your lawyers and and your Supreme Court justices about whether these orders line up with the Constitution. You can ring up your local law professor at your local university, ask him to weigh in on that issue. Because whether it's constitutional or not is really a little bit more of a secular matter. It has to do with the laws of the United States. This is church. And what I'm here to do is provide you with biblical counsel regarding your conduct as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what God wants you to do, even if your constitutional rights are violated. Regardless of whether it actually is unconstitutional or not, what I'm seeing is a lot of Christians who at least least perceive that it is, and their response to that is to fight. They jump on social media and cry out over the injustice, or, or like the pastor I just told you about, they violate the state stay-at-home order in an effort to exercise their constitutional rights, and then they blast it all over social media? They tell everyone how the church needs to stand up and fight for our constitutional rights? And friends, I don't know how I can say this more plainly, but there's nothing Christian about this. Absolutely none. Now, again, let me be clear, I'm not saying it's anti-Christian to exercise the rights established under our system of laws. You think of Paul, for instance, and he made no hesitation about exercising his right to appeal to Caesar when it was convenient. There's nothing wrong with that, since to do that is to actually be in submission to the government. But that's way different than thinking that we should get aggressive and fight for our rights as Christians when they're violated. The Bible only ever tells us that there is only one way that we should respond when this happens. And that's with meekness, with gentleness. Not boasts, not threats, but with a gentle and quiet spirit. Perhaps the clearest example of this occurs in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can follow along with me. I'm not actually, like I said, I'm not dealing with a particular text today, so I never asked you to open your Bibles like I normally do at the beginning of our message. But uh, maybe you can follow along. We'll look at a couple of passages here in 1 Peter 2. I think this is probably the clearest example of this that we find in the Scripture. Uh, It occurs in 1 Peter 2. There, Peter writes to a people suffering persecution for their faith. And he says, verses 13 through 17, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And in case you're wondering about the character of these leaders that Peter is telling them to submit to, whether they're ruling justly or not, observe what he says in the very next verse. He says, verses 18 and 19, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only with the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He gives similar counsel to wives living under the leadership of husbands who, quote, do not obey the word in chapter 3. He tells them, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure Conduct, He says in verses 3 and 4, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. In the context of all this, Peter explains why we're to live this way, why we respond to injustice with gentleness telling us, for this is the way that Christ suffered, leaving an example for you to follow. Chapter 2, verses 21 and 25, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen to this. It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You guys know what he's talking about there, don't you? Did Christ fight against those who persecuted him? When they arrested him under cover of darkness and then tried him falsely? And brought false witnesses against him? Do you ever see him protest? The violation of his rights? Do you ever see him get angry? Or offended at the way they're treating him? Does he ever become aggressive towards his enemies? And demand that they give him a fair trial? For that matter, at any point in his ministry, do you ever see him exercise his rights, and then taunt his enemies to, quote, come and get him? No. He told Peter to put away his sword. He said that he could appeal to his father and instantly have more than 12 legions of angels to fight for him. When false witnesses slandered him, he remained silent. When his persecutors finally demanded they tell them whether or not he was the Christ, the Son of God, he said simply... You have said so. In the same way, when Pilate coaxed him, throwing in his face that he had the authority to crucify him, Jesus didn't back down, right? I mean, he wasn't a coward. But neither did he feel the need to threaten Pilate. Instead, he answered back coolly. You would have no authority over me at all unless it be given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He actually acknowledged God's authority in placing Pilate in the position he was in, and then he submitted to that authority. In fact, even as he was led to the place of execution, he still didn't call for God's angels to come and deliver him. He still didn't fight against his captors. Instead, he turned towards the crowds that were following him and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? He actually shows compassion to them. Even as he's going to the cross. And as he hung on the cross, he declared, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do friends do you understand we serve a meek savior and please make no mistake this is not the same thing as saying we serve a weak savior jesus is anything but weak it's apparent throughout the gospels that he possesses unlimited power again he could call on 12 legions of angels to come and deliver him if he wanted to And yet, as strong as Jesus is, as powerful as he is, he restrains that strength. That is the very definition of meekness. It is strength restrained, and that's what we see in our Savior. This is what Jesus does repeatedly throughout his ministry. He holds holds back his strength. He refuses to assert himself. Why does he do this? This leads me into my second reminder. Reminder reminder number two, imaging Christ means sacrificing your own rights for the sake of God's enemies. Again, let me say that again. It means sacrificing your own rights for the sake of God's enemies. If we were to ask ourselves why Jesus is so meek, Why he refused to assert his strength. There are probably a number of different answers we could give. Uh, We could point to his trust in both the power and justice of God. That's what we see in his response to Pilate. For instance, he recognized Pilate's authority as ultimately deriving from God. And so he yielded himself less to Pilate and more to God, right? The God who gave Pilate that authority. It's what we see in Peter. When Peter notes that Jesus endured all these abuses, quote, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, Jesus was concerned about justice, it would seem. He just didn't think it was his place to try to exert it. That, he saw, was in the hands of God, and it would be exercised in its due time. We could also point to Jesus' general selflessness. You see instances for Example where Jesus does get pretty angry, and he does fight Israel's corrupt religious leaders. But if you notice, it tends to occur either when these authorities have attacked the glory of God, such as when he cleanses the temple, or when they're harming others, such as when they refuse to practice compassion on the man with the withered hand for the sake of maintaining their Sabbath traditions. It's never in reference to himself. It's always as an expression of love, first to God and then second to his neighbor, that he gets angry. This would be another reason for Jesus' meekness, his extreme humility, his servant's heart, his willingness to put himself last. But in addition to this and related to this last point, I think you can also say that it came as an expression of his great love. And not just towards God, and not just towards the weak and the needy, but also towards his enemies. Also towards the very men who would deny him justice. We actually saw a brilliant example of this in our scripture reading this morning. Uh, Jesus heals this man with the withered hand. Matthew notes that after this, the Pharisees went out and conspired together against him. How to destroy him. And then he says, Matthew 12, 15 to 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him, and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. I'd imagine you read this part about God's servant not breaking the bruised reed or not extinguishing the smoldering wick. And you might think that this is referring to the compassion that Jesus expressed as he healed those who were coming to him, people like this man with a withered hand. That's not what Matthew is referring to. You need to pay attention to the section of this reference that has to do with the servant not quarreling or crying aloud to understand this reference. Matthew says that the Pharisees began to conspire against Jesus. And then he says that Jesus, aware of this, withdrew. He didn't fight with them. He didn't assert himself, even though he was in the right, he withdrew. And then as he healed, he told people not to make himself known. And do you know why? It's because Jesus is anticipating the reaction that's going to occur later in this very same chapter where the crowds begin to ask themselves, can this be the son of David? And the religious leaders respond by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In case you aren't aware, that's a major turning point in Jesus' ministry because it's at that moment when it becomes apparent that there's no turning back with respect to Israel's hardness of heart since the nation's leaders have become so committed to their rejection that they're actively shutting people out of the kingdom of heaven. You see, the way Matthew is presenting this, Israel is the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. In this instance, it's apparent to Jesus after healing the man with the withered hand that they're in a fragile condition spiritually. And so rather than just simply asserting himself, Jesus deals gently with them by actually withdrawing from the conflict and seeking to do his ministry quietly. In short, Jesus does this as an expression of love to his enemies. He backs off. And he deals gently with them because in spite of what they say and do to him, he loves them. And eagerly desires that they'd come to repentance and be saved. I mean, this is why Jesus goes to the cross in the first place, right? He didn't assert himself. Instead, he surrendered his rights in that instance because he wished to die for the sins of the very individuals who would hang him on that cross. Again, he prays on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's meek with his enemies. And he surrenders his rights instead of asserting them, not just because he trusts God and not just because he possesses a generally selfless demeanor, but because he means to save his enemies, not destroy them. My friends, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, I am honestly incredibly perplexed by the attitude that I'm seeing take place in the church at large right now. Because the attitude I'm seeing in the church right now is one of offense at the world over the fact that our government has asked us not to meet for the sake of public health. And maybe I'm just reading the situation wrong. I could be completely wrong in, in how I'm reading this, as I'm seeing what people are saying and doing online and all this different stuff. But it seems to me that this offense is coming from the fact that Christians like going to church. Right? We like going to church. We like worshiping God. This is, you know, we don't have to be here. We want to be here. And, and people are upset because this request is keeping them from engaging in that kind of an activity, something that they really enjoy. It's keeping them from something they like doing, something that makes them happy, and who is the government to tell them what they can and cannot do? Listen, friends, I like going to church too. I was ex- I've been excited to gather with you here this morning. And I understand the Scripture commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves, and it does this for good reason. I think you would all, again, probably know me well enough by now to know that no one believes in the importance of the local church more than I do. It's why I'm a pastor. It's why I'm a church planter, specifically. Like I've told you before, Ephesians 4 and this whole notion of the body building itself up in love completely transformed my life. It has literally shaped every major decision of my life for the past 15 years. I mean, I don't get up here and preach for an hour or more every week because I think hearing the word of God taught and and explained, right, is unimportant. But that said, I worry that right now Christians are losing sight of the reason why we go to church. We assemble to be encouraged in our faith. And we, you know, assemble to, to be equipped not to serve ourselves. No, it's to serve the unbeliever. We come here to be built up and established in our faith so we can go out into the world and share this gospel. It's it's like you hear me say so often, the purpose of the church is worship, but its present mission is the Great Commission. This is why Jesus has left us here on earth to spread the gospel. And this is why I'm so confused when I see Christians offended and upset when the government puts excessive restrictions in place for the sake of public health, if indeed they're excessive. I mean, why would we be upset? Those people living in fear of death, that's your target. Only you've been sent not to destroy them, but to save them. That fear that they're experiencing in that moment is the reason for your existence, Christian. And the very purpose of your present calling. What the unbelieving world needs to hear right now is not your concern for your constitutional rights, but your concern for their soul. And honestly, friends, this is what upsets me about this so much. This is where I think the church is just completely missing the boat right now because I don't think that's what they're hearing. What I think the world is actually seeing in this moment is not a church that will go to any lengths possible To serve them as Christ would have served them. To sacrifice itself for their benefit as Christ did for us. Instead, what they're seeing is a body of people who will yell and kick and scream in order to get their way. They want to go be with their friends. They want to worship their God. And who cares about what happens to the rest of us? That's the look that the church is presenting to the world right now in this moment. It's one of selfishness and self-assertion, not sacrifice and meekness. And it's contrary to the gospel. Do you understand there are people in this world that don't share our hope? I get it. You're fine. You believe there's a resurrection. COVID-19 doesn't scare you. Great. I'm with you. But you know what? The person living next door to you doesn't share that hope. They think that when they die, that's it. We know and proclaim that it's actually much worse than that. That if they don't believe in Christ, then they'll suffer the wrath of God in hell for eternity. And so what do you think it looks like to the world when the government says, you need to stop meeting together for the sake of public health so people don't die? And then the church, the church screams back, you don't have the right. If you're not sure how they perceive that. Then you can go and ask the people who burned down a church in Mississippi this past week after it violated a stay-at-home order and then spray-painted onto the rubble. Bet you stay at home now, you hypocrites. Now, obviously, this church is suffering. And it was a sin for those people to burn down that church. It was not justified what they did. But I have to tell you, I think if Peter were alive and well today, he would tell that church, you're not being persecuted. You're suffering for doing evil, not for doing good. Earlier this morning, I told you about my friend who asked me if I thought this whole coronavirus thing was something contrived to control us. Again, I don't know what he meant by the us in that statement, if he was referring to us as Americans or us as Christians. But I can tell you that a lot of Christians right now are asking that, referring to us as Christians. And you know what I really think? I really think the world feels uh, very uh, not threatened by us at the moment. Reason being, there's nothing to be threatened by. I mean, how are we going to decry the the decline of the church out of the one side of our mouth and then turn around and think the world feels threatened by us? To quote the missionary Jim Elliott, the world cannot hate us, we are too much like its own. That's the actual state of affairs. And I'm not talking just about theological liberalism. I'm talking about evangelicalism at large. And I'm talking about how it expresses itself in instances like this one. You see, the scripture tells us that the way we actually influence the culture and gain things like religious freedom isn't by fighting for it. It's through meekness. It's through loving the world first and then worrying about our own well-being and comfort second. That's what Peter says over in 1 Peter when he tells believers to be submissive to unjust rulers and wives to be submissive to disobedient husbands. He tells the Christian citizen, this is verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He tells wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is how you influence the political realm as a Christian. It isn't by shouting for your rights. It's by willingly surrendering your rights for the sake of your enemies. You understand, blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Listen, that's not only an eschatological promise. It is an eschatological promise, yes, but it's not only that. That's also the path to gospel advancement here and now in this age. It's through meekness. To quote the Apostle Paul, He says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. You go back to the church and when it was persecuted, and this is what it was doing. The early Christians didn't shake the Roman Empire to its foundations by fighting for their political rights. They did it as they died in the arena and blessed their persecutors, anyways. It's that radical sort of love that begins to win so many converts that it threatens the very foundations of a society's cultural institutions and invites the ire of those trying to hold on to what's left of the decaying order. Not this, not yelling and screaming about how we should have the right to please ourselves. I don't know that's what characterizes the church right now. So I don't think this is some kind of attempt to persecute the church. Truth is, Satan doesn't really need to persecute us so long as he can take our attention off the gospel and divert it to secondary matters, like getting us to fight for our political rights. You understand what I'm talking about here? Again, I'm not saying that meeting together isn't important. I got an email this week from a pastor talking about how after all this is over, uh, the church is mainly going to function online, and that <laughs> he actually said that corporate, corporate services should be once a month at most after the virus is over, and preferably only once per quarter. No, <laughs> right? The body of Christ needs to assemble in person for all the reasons I just said at the outset of today's passage or message. We need to meet together. I'm not saying we shouldn't meet together. We should meet together. I'm not even saying that the Christian shouldn't be engaged in politics. Again, this isn't a a comprehensive message on this topic, so I can't explore the depths of that issue here this morning, but I think I've made myself clear before. I think it's perfectly fine, even a good and noble thing for the Christian to be engaged in politics when it's approached in the right way. What I'm trying to talk to you about is why we meet or don't meet. And how this should affect the attitude with which we discuss these matters with the world. Our attitude should be one of service towards the world. We should be willing to set aside whatever rights we can for their spiritual benefit. And then when they abuse that willingness to serve, we respond not with a harsh word, but with a gentle one, one that expresses our willingness to serve them in spite of their abuse. Listen, friends, Jesus told us that if we wish to be his disciples, that we must take up our cross and follow him. That's not the path of self-assertion and self-preservation. That's a path of service and sacrifice. When our rights are being trampled, our attitude really should be closer to the tone that Paul takes in 1 Corinthians 6, when after believers undermine the testimony of the church by fighting for their rights with one another's, which they did by taking each other to court. He said, To have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's the same with our government. When we respond to an encroachment on our legal rights with loud protests of the contrary, and most especially in situations like this one, where rulers are trying to do what they think is in the best interest of the public, we've already lost. We've undermined the gospel. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Again, there's so much more I could say on this topic. I'm really just getting started. But I'm already uh, running pretty long this morning. So instead of ending this morning's message with a conclusion, uh, I'd actually like to wrap up uh, our time here together with more of an introduction. To think of this time as more of an introduction. I think this is obviously a very important topic for us to get our arms around the Christian's relationship with the government, given not only how this pandemic is testing our convictions on these issues, but even most especially considering that this is all happening in an election year. And so starting next week, we're going to begin a new Sunday School series uh, called uh, Church and State. Uh, And as usual, half the class will be a video put on by Ligonier Ministries. Uh, R.C. Sproul will be the teacher for that particular course. And then the other half of the class will be discussing uh, the topic together. Uh, I can tell you right now, I don't agree with everything that Sproul has to say on the subject. In fact, our divergent theologies are going to lead us into some pretty major disagreements on the issue. But it should all make for some interesting reflection as we try to discern together what the Scripture tells us about the church's relationship with the state. So if you'd like to dig in to this topic a bit more, and in a sense hear the rest of what I'd like to tell you, and uh, in in this morning, if I had the time, uh, then I encourage you to come back next week uh, for Sunday school. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.